I'm going to talk about meditation today because people have been asking me about meditation lately and I thought it would be a good topic because there's a lot of confusion about meditation. Uh, Meditation is uh, part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, We have mindfulness and we have concentration. So that leads us to believe that we have two forms of meditation as a Buddhist that we can do. Uh, One form, uh, concentration, is called Samatha meditation. And this is something that the Buddha learned from the teachers of India 2,600 years ago. And according to the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification by the 5th century monk Buddha Gosha, there are 40 different kinds of samatha meditation. As the story goes, the Buddha was able to practice and, and, um, and do it better do the meditation better than his teachers. So all his teachers said, why don't you take my students because you're much better than I am. And the Buddha said, no, no, no. He said, this isn't it yet. And the problem with Samatha meditation, according to the Vasudhimaga, is it's a temporary state of balance, equanimity, and peace. That it only happens when the correct conditions arise out of your meditation practice. But when you leave the cushion and walk outside and go on the 101 freeway, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion arise immediately. He said, there must be some way to make this permanent. I wonder if I can find it. And according to the Theravada tradition, there were 27 Buddhas before Siddhartha. He was the 28th Buddha. And what he did is he rediscovered insight meditation which allowed him to forever be in a place of peace and non-suffering. So, how does this stuff work? And is one kind of meditation the only kind of meditation or the best kind of meditation? Well, to give a simple explanation of samatha meditation, um, we could use the sensation of breath, which is also found in vipassana meditation. So we bring our attention to the tip of our nose and we become aware of the sensation of breath. And we find it goes out and it comes in and it goes out and it comes in. And normally, throughout the day, we have no power over our breathing. It's something that just happens while we do other stuff. Now and then, If you have asthma or you're drowning, uh, you become aware of your breath and realize how important it is and how necessary it is. But up until that point, we pretty much take it for granted that we're always going to breathe. And thankfully, living in Los Angeles, they're cleaning up the air. So we'll have better air to breathe. And that's a good thing. So how does this breathing lead to altered states of consciousness? You might say to yourself, Well, in the first jhana, there are four jhanas, and these are deep states of tranquility or concentration. What we find are five characteristics, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. In the first jhana, we are using applied thought and sustained thought to hold our object of meditation. We're taking our mind and we're applying it to the sensation of breath And we're holding it there. And when the mind wants to wander off and think about other things, 
we gently, with compassion, bring it back to the object of meditation, which is the sensation of breath. Usually, after a few minutes of just simply watching your breath, uh, it's boring and you wander off into wonderful daydreams or the thought process of what you need to do after the meditation is over. It is helpful at that point, when you recognize your mind wandering, to use numbers to give the mind something to do. Now, numbers are mental constructs, and they're useful because it gives us a a sense of being in the moment with the current thought rather than being in the future or being in the past. It is said you don't want to go any lower than one or any higher than ten. And if you do go lower than one or higher than ten, you weren't meditating and need to go back to one and reconnect with a sensation of breath. So one to ten, ten to one, one to ten, ten to one, over and over and over again. In the beginning, if you are uh, new to meditation, it allows you to understand that you are meditating when you are counting your breath, and you are not meditating when you're not counting your breath. Some people say, how do I know if I'm meditating? It's so simple in breath counting. Breath counting allows you to know immediately if you are meditating. So this form of meditation is just an extended concentration. It's a focused concentration. It's a laser-like concentration. Only thinking, only recognizing one thing, the object of meditation, the sensation of breath. What you find as you continue to focus on the sensation of breath, applied thought and sustained thought are no longer necessary. Your mind simply rests on the object of meditation in the same way finding a G chord on a ukulele becomes a second nature when you do it long enough. Now you have an increased sense of pleasure, an increased sense of happiness, and an increased sense of balance or equanimity. As we continue to focus on the sensation of breath, The meditator needs to look at the idea of giving up something. Because Buddhism is a path of renunciation. We have too much stuff. And the idea in finding our perfection is to get rid of the stuff that prevents us from realizing that perfection that is already there. So with thought and reflection, the meditator decides to give up pleasure, the physical pleasure. Now, there's physical pleasure, and the other side of the coin is physical pain. But the meditator soon realizes that it's an automatic response to reality to have pleasure and pain, and doesn't have much to do with you. The meditator then reflects on that and says, I think rather than giving up pleasure, I will give up my attachment to pleasure and my aversion to pain. I will simply be in the present moment as pain and pleasure arise, And I will rename them as strong sensation. Strong sensation has less baggage attached to it and allows us to sit in the strong sensation longer than to sit in the pain sensation or the pleasure sensation. So far, so good. The meditator is making great progress and it's only taken five years. Now, the meditator reflects on the next step and that's happiness. 
giving up attachment to happiness and aversion to sadness allows us to get that much closer to the end result of this meditation practice, which is called equanimity, perfect balance of mind, not committed to the left or the right, but simply staying in the middle. And perhaps that's why they call Buddhism the middle path. So in understanding how happiness arises and in understanding how aversion arises, the meditator lets go of the attachment and the aversion to happiness and unhappiness or sadness and now comes with one characteristic left. And that characteristic is perfect balance of mind, which allows you not to suffer and be in the present moment and have profound acceptance of the way things are without wanting them to be any different. And that's the profound peace that comes with nirvana or the fourth jhana or ultimately in vipassana meditation as well. Now, there are certain things that I found interesting as, as I started to think and talk about how to meditate. And, and one of the things is that we're starting with a concept of counting the breath and then we're letting that concept fall away, and then we come to a sensation of breath, which is non-intellectual, it's experiential, it's empirical. But there's one more level to go as the meditator lets go of concepts, and then finally lets go of sensations. The meditator goes into the internal experience of breath. Now, in the Vasudhimaga, it was plainly written that the experience of breath, internal, conscious, has certain characteristics that we can become aware of. Some of the characteristics are, number one, it seems like the breath has the internal experience of being balls of cotton, or it has the internal experience of being like fireflies blinking on and off as Bush would have said a thousand points of light. It also has the experience of being almost lava-like and flowing with colors in a river-like pattern inside your head, inside your consciousness. When the meditator becomes aware of that internal reality, all the sense doors close the meditator cannot see, the meditator cannot hear, or smell, or taste, or touch. It seems to the meditator that the body now has disappeared and you are strictly a form of consciousness. A form of consciousness. This allows one then to go into altered states of consciousness and have rather dramatic experiences on occasion. And and sense and realize that those sensations and experiences are always there and one can access them through meditation and not through medication. Ta-da! So, the meditator sits quietly in the experience of the breath with sense doors closed and has a wonderful sense of peace and place. But it's temporary, and that's what the Buddha found as well. So he rediscovered insight meditation, which had been practiced by the 27 Buddhas before him, and realized permanent release from suffering, and permanent release from the rounds of birth and death, 
and the end of his karma. So, how does that work? What's necessary? In the first form of meditation, it almost seems like suppression. It almost seems like we're, we're avoiding emotional suffering and physical suffering by simply not paying attention to it and being focused on the object of meditation. This gives us a clue if we're sitting in meditation and have sore knees or a sore back or an agitated mind. There are, there are two workarounds to that problem, which I will share with you right now. The first workaround is to become one with the pain. Now, I'm not sure if this is an easy one or a hard one to do, but generally speaking, when we have pain, we want to be separate from it and not be part of it. But theoretically, if you can be one with the pain and not be separate from it, there is no one experiencing the pain. There's no separation. An easier way to do it, perhaps, would be to simply focus so hard on your object of meditation that the pain disappears because you're not paying attention to it. In the same way, you might be reading a newspaper and have the television on and have the radio on, and if you find a fascinating article and are reading with great clarity and focus, you can't hear the radio any longer and you can't hear the television any longer. Once the article is over, all of a sudden the room is filled again with sound and distraction. As we go into Vipassana meditation, what we find there are four kinds of insight meditation. Mindfulness of the body, <clears throat> mindfulness of sensations of the body, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. So I'm going to talk about sensation, mindfulness of sensation. The Buddha said we have three kinds of sensation, pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and neutral sensations. So we can pretty much check off neutral sensations, and now we're going to focus on pleasant and unpleasant. I found when I started to meditate that I had no pleasant sensations at all. That for the first two years of my meditation practice, it was simply experiencing unpleasant sensations for 30 or 40 minutes at a time. I continued to do it because I was really fascinated by the Dharma and not fascinated at all about meditation because I saw no good things coming out of my meditation practice. As I continued to meditate, I started to realize that what was going on internally, emotionally, was a purging of issues that had not been resolved. I also found these issues seemed to have places in my body that were knotted. And when I continued to sit and meditate and allow these issues to arise and exist and eventually pass away, I found those little knots and unpleasant places in my body started to loosen up, become more flexible, and eventually not harbor any pain or, or suffering. But that was two years of work. I now come to a place where I can sit quietly for long periods of time and not feel anything. And that may or may not be good, depending on how you want to respond and react in a community of four million people. So I'm sitting, I'm meditating, I'm now scanning my body from the top of my head to the tip of my toes to find any kind of sensation, pleasant or unpleasant. And there are plenty of them there. 
And I would simply note the fact that this one is pleasant, this one is unpleasant, and I continue my scanning process to find the next sensation and simply note pleasant and unpleasant and do that for 20, 40, 50 minutes, noting simply pleasant and unpleasant. Staying not with a concentrated, laser-like focus of, uh, uh, of awareness, but simply having momentary awareness, scanning in a general way, and then focusing in on that sensation became obvious, and then relaxing and scanning in a general way. So it's relax, focus, relax, focus, momentary concentration. At the end of that 40 minutes, 30 minutes of, of noting, I would then go into a deep state of rumination or reflection. And I would ask myself, do any of these sensations that I became aware of, either pleasant or unpleasant, have any kind of permanence? Do they exist unconditionally? Will they stay unchanging for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, the rest of my life? I reflected with my minimal understanding of Dharma that all my sensations I became aware of in this particular moment of meditation seemed to be impermanent. They seemed to come out of nowhere, exist for a while, and if I was lucky enough, they would go away. And then they would arise again in some other way and catch my attention. And they kept catching my attention because they wanted me to be the agent of change. They wanted me to move my leg or scratch my face or something else just to relieve that sensation unpleasant. The pleasant sensations you became attached to and wanted them to last as long as possible, but then you realized even wanting them to last for as long as possible limited their existence and they seemed to go away faster rather than later. And then you start to say, well, it seems to me that all things are impermanent, sensations and emotions, and that if I get attached or have aversion to any of them, I will suffer more, I will not suffer less. And then you take that realization and apply it to the world around you, and you say to yourself, all these sensations, all my personal experiences, all my intellectual understandings are simply impermanent because everything is in a constant state of change and flux, and what I know today to be truth may be false tomorrow because of that impermanence and change. So, you now come to a deep intellectual and rather transpersonal understanding that all things are in a constant state of flux and change and there's nothing ever to hold on to. Second insight coming from these sensations. Are these sensations ultimately unsatisfactory? Now, in the first two years of my meditation practice, every sensation was ultimately unsatisfactory. But as I continued to meditate, I had some wonderful, exciting, pleasurable sensations arise, exist, and pass away, which I could hardly wait to have happen again. But even in these pleasant, wonderful sensations, the fact remained that they were impermanent, and when they left, left, even the good ones turned out to be ultimately unsatisfactory because they didn't stay forever. 
So it, it was rather disappointing to come to this realization in my meditation practice that ultimately everything, including my life, including me, will become ultimately unsatisfactory. And as I age and go into my senior years, it simply validates that premise that all things are ultimately unsatisfactory. And of course, the big payoff for a human is that then you die, which may ultimately be unsatisfactory as well when you're reborn, and it's Pacoima. Okay. Third, <laughs> third realization is that I do not exist in the way I think I do, which when you're younger can be rather disappointing and when you're older is just a wonderful sense of relief that you don't exist in the way you think you do. And why is that the case? It seems that there is no ultimate, unchanging, independent, unconditional self ego, personality, I, me, or mine that exists. Rather, it seems that when a human body and a human mind come together, they create in some special, magical way a sense of self, which has been exercised over the centuries and decades and thousands of years into this wonderful person, Hood that allows us to separate and understand. And because humans are so crafty in what they think, say, and do, this world of ours has been manufactured and is fabricated out of a sense of self. We have changed the direction of rivers. We've built bridges. We have carved Abraham Lincoln's face in a mountain. Humans are remarkable and amazing in what they can come up with and what they can do only because they have a self. And as our self matures, we start from nothing into something, and then we become someone, and then ultimately we become no one. It's, uh, it's the arc of being a human that, to me, is just amazing and became apparent because I started to understand the third aspect of Buddhist wisdom, which is anatta, not self. In doing that, in understanding that I am a product of the conditions around me, that I only exist this way right now because everything is here in this way right now. If, in fact, we had, instead of 40 humans, we had 40 cats, right now, here, I would be manifesting in a different way and probably talking in cat talk. If we had <laughs> 40 dogs or 40 soldiers or 40 policemen or 40 politicians, I would be manifesting in a way necessary to relate and understand and be part of the company I was keeping. So when I am determined to be something or someone and go into the world with that idea, all I need to think about is every time I go home and spend some time with the family, I regress back into this 16-year-old boy who takes out the trash and has no 
qualified opinions or answers to anything. And no matter how old I get or how hard I try, there is that sort of habit pattern that arises immediately around family, which is just fascinating. And I imagine it happens around wife and children or partners or buddies as well, that we become who we need to become in the present moment. An example I like to use is being on the freeway and breaking the speed limit. I'm pulled over by CHP, and they ask to see my driver's license, and I show my driver's license, and I say to the officer, you know, this really isn't me. I am everything and I am nothing at exactly the same time. And then the officer would escort me to the psychiatric ward of the county hospital. (laughs) Just the way life works. So having come in my meditation practice of Vipassana to the understanding that, number one, all things are changing in a constant state of flux and nothing lasts longer than a moment. All things ultimately end in unsatisfactoriness. Number three, I am not who I think I am. I am a product of my environment, my experience, my education, and my intuition. And now, when I am faced with a a negative situation, I can detach from it because there's no one experiencing it. It always leads to suffering because of impermanence. So as soon as I attach or have aversion to anything, I need to stand in a place of equanimity and balance and never close my hand, but always keep the hands open. So things come and then things go. As soon as I close my hand to hold on to anything, I suffer. So meditation practice is so important. It's the third aspect of karma. It's the possible, along with karma, it's the the thought process we've had in this lifetime may manifest again in the next lifetime because the last thought of this lifetime will be the first thought of the next lifetime. So it's important to think in a certain way. And that is a way that includes love, generosity, and wisdom. It's important not to think in a certain way. And that includes greed, hatred, and delusion. It's important to have a good last thought in this lifetime so we can have a better first thought in the next lifetime. It's important to cultivate the mind because we use it every day and it is necessary to interact with this very complicated environment. No mind, no life. Though there is a saying which I really like, if you meditate, lose your mind and come to your senses. So lose your intellect for a moment and come to your sense doors. That's what the mind is working with. That's what the mind is using to create the story of your life. Okay. I hope that made some sense. Meditation allows us to have a better day every day. Meditation allows us to ultimately find peace and happiness in enlightenment or nirvana. It allows us to be who we have the potential to be, which ultimately is no one in particular.